I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Betsy Struxness. Betsy has had extensive experience on Broadway, including her time in Wicked, Memphis, Matilda, and as an original cast member of Hamilton. Beyond that, Betsy is a multifaceted artist, enjoying photography, writing, choreography, works, dance, fitness, and creating content. Betsy, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I am doing very, very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, definitely. Um, And excited to be talking to you today and just, you know, sort of see where this conversation goes. And let's get started talking about your photography and your travel, right? You, You like to travel and explore the uniqueness of being human and sort of capturing that through photography. And, I, and I'm really interested in that. And if you could tell me uh, some of the places that you've traveled, I don't like to use the favorite, right? Because it's so hard to pick that down. Like, how do I pick my favorite? Maybe just some of the ones that are on the top of your mind. And what sorts of uniqueness have you been able to capture in some of those places you've traveled to? Oh, good question. So <laughs> I my, my mother was really into photography when I was a mm-hmm. kid and growing up. And of course, that was in the days where it was all film. And it was not digital. And she fully had um, an SLR camera with a, you know, removable lens and whatnot and knew all about the techniques of what it took to take a well-exposed photograph on film. Um, But it wasn't really until the digital age came around that I started really getting into photography where, you know, that instant gratification and where you could look at something and be like, oh, that's dark and make adjustments. So it was Mm. easier for me to learn quicker with in the digital realm uh, than it was in the film realm. And so I started getting into it in like the the early aughts, like 2004, 2005. And then in 2006, I was out on tour and I still had the same little Pentax Optio camera that I had, that had been um, a hand-me-down from a boyfriend at the time. And it was like this tiny camera that fit in a, an Altoid tin. Um, 
And I sort of had maxed out the creativity in three years of what could happen on that Pentax Optio. So then I I was get, getting off of um, the All Shook Up tour in 2007. And then I went and bought myself a camera at this big camera store in New York, where I asked them, you know, I said, I want to learn more about photography. I need something I can grow with. And so they mm-hmm. recommended the the Canon Rebel and so I bought myself a Canon Rebel and a couple of um, interchangeable lenses. And then I took myself on a six-week trip through Europe. And I was I traveled alone, although I visited friends while I was there. Um, but my camera was really my travel buddy. And so to be alone for so long and just traipsing around these gorgeous cities uh, looking you know, just looking for inspiration, looking for art, things that caught mm-hmm. my eye. It went a really long way in helping me shape my artistic eye. And so I went from London to Munich, then to the Czech Republic. I went to Prague, yep. Vienna, yep. Um, Venice, Florence, Cinque Terre, Rome, Zurich, uh, Amsterdam, Stockholm, and then back to London. Okay. You did a little traveling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was amazing. And I just, I loved it so much because I had never studied abroad. Um, Mm. and traveling across Europe was just something that I really wanted to do. And so that sort of lit the fire of travel photography for me. And then once I got into, um, Wicked in Chicago, Uh, I then started to take it. We don't get a lot of vacation time working in theater. You get one week every six months. And so. Oh, wow. That's not a lot at all. No. (laughs) No. And and so then anytime I got my week vacation, I would take it. And unfortunately for my family, I was never that kid who took my vacation to like go home to visit my family. I pretty much always just went out of the country. And so in Wicked, it was like Belize and Curacao. And then once I got on Broadway, it was like Greece, Iceland, um, Mm. Morocco. Iceland and Morocco are two of my top, along along with that six weeks in Europe. And then I also, well, there's also three weeks in Australia and New Zealand, which was was also pretty awesome. Um, hey, hey, Betsy, before before we go on, you mentioned a place in your Europe trip that I wasn't familiar with. I think it was Cinque Terre. Cinque Terre. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, okay. tell me about that. Cinque Terre is in Italy, and it was recommended to me uh, by a friend of mine. And it was by far my favorite place that I went to in Europe. So it's huh. five, the five lands, Cinque Terre. Um, oh, gotcha. And it's these five little towns that are right on the West Coast up, up north in Italy um, mm. near La Spezia. I think that's the like biggest town that's near it. And all of these five towns are connected by this old trading path um, that merchants and stuff used to take in order you know, to sell their wares and whatnot. And these little five towns are either nestled down in this like bay right on the water and everything is sort of built up around that and there's like no cars around or there's one of the places that's right on a cliff and so you're taking this 
little narrow path that is just on a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean for wow. nine kilometers. And mm. I did, I did the hike there and back. So I did like 18, an 18 kilometer hike in one day and it was just gorgeous. And I would take pictures along the way. And then each time I stopped in a town, I would, um, take like 10 or 15 minutes and go swimming in the water, just like put my stuff to one side and then like go swim and cool off because it was in the summertime and it was really hot. Hmm. But it was- And what was it like in the towns? Are they filled with tourists or were they welcoming? Did it feel authentic? What was that like? Oh, it felt totally authentic. Barely anyone spoke English. When I got there, um, because I was just- I never really pre-booked my accommodations because at the time you could like arrive at a train station and go to the information stations and they would be like, these are the hostels that are nearby or the places where you can, you know, they have rooms open for the night. And I'd be like, okay. So I also really had to use the restroom when I got there. So I kept (laughs) going to these little like hostels being like, Hey, do you have a room? And they're like, we're booked. I'm like, great. Can I use the restroom? And they're like, sorry, no. I'm like, okay. Oh, so then, man, I that's got, rude. then I got directed to a, an internet cafe. Yeah. So I went to the internet cafe where the gentleman who ran it allowed me to use the restroom. And then he had a connection with an older woman who lived in uh, Monteroso was where I was staying. And so she lived in Monteroso and she had a couple of rooms that she only let out to women travelers. And so he called her and I got a spot for the night and this woman spoke not a single lick of English and I spoke not a single lick of Italian. Um, but I had my little like phrase book. So I yeah. could say like, hello, thank you. No, thank you. Excuse me. <laughs> you know, and, and that, so I stayed with her for like three days and, oh, cool. you know, we just sort of like smiled and nodded at each other in passing. <laughs> Um, but it was just this, you know, these tiny little Italian towns that were just gorgeous. They're known for like lemons and olives. And so like Mm. I tried their limoncello, um, you know, wound up getting snagged into like a mini date with some Italian man who Uh treated me to dinner and olives and, you know, was a little handsy when he shouldn't have been. And then, (laughs) (laughs) um, so yeah, so that was that was my experience in Cinque Terre, and I took my camera everywhere and just took mm. so many pictures. I think I came back from Europe with like three thousand photos or something that I mm. needed to go through. Oh, and this was the mm. time too where like it was still the beginning of the digital era. I was traveling without a laptop, and I had some device that allowed me to take the photographs off the card of my. Uh, camera and put it onto my iPod, like my actual iPod, because it was an iPod video. So it kind of worked as an external hard drive. And so I could just dump my photographs there, um, Mm. to keep them, to keep them safe until I got back to the States to be able to like relook at my photographs and whatnot. (laughs) Yeah. Now thinking about your photos and your travels, cause they're kind of, it sounds like they're kind of intertwined. Mm. What have been some unexpected events that you've been able to capture and experience through your travels? When I was in Prague, um, there was a like fire eater or fire breather who was kind of a street performer. And so I was trying to capture him like, you know, 
spewing fire everywhere. And it was really hard, of course, to capture because it was also at night. Yeah. And so I was just trying like all these different settings on my camera. And then I tried sport mode. And so it just it's put all of the settings in the right place for me um, at night and quickly so that mm. I could just like depress my shutter button as he was getting ready to start um, like spitting gasoline, I guess, onto this sort of fire stick to make it <laughs> explode. And I just, I captured this incredible picture of just this like swirling fireball and this man sort of lit up in the swirling fireball and there's not much else around them. Uh, hmm. and so that was really cool. And then I did something similar in Iceland years later with uh, a geyser. And so I was trying to capture the explosion of a geyser and I put it in sport mode and the geyser I think would explode like every 10 minutes. And so I kind of, I stayed around for a few rounds of it to, to figure out when it was going to blow. And so then once I figured out when it was going to blow, I pressed my shutter button right before, and I got this fantastic photograph of the geyser, um, just beginning and so it looks like this interesting bulbous hmm. water sculpture in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And so so that was really cool as well. And then I've huh. been fortunate enough that a few of my Broadway shows have allowed me to use my camera backstage. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've so, seen some of those. So I have some amazing photographs of Memphis, of Matilda, um, of Hamilton and even some of the other ones like Leap of Faith, which was a flop and Scandalous, which was a flop, um, you know, and I, and I have a ton of photographs of Wicked too. So I have like the transformation of the witches from being regular women to being green women or like Fiero becoming a scarecrow or Bach becoming mm. the Tin Man. And so th those are really special as well because they just, they bring back so many good memories, but they're also such amazing events to witness and so few people get to witness them. Your examples, uh, or at least the ones you've, you've shared, really show how you're utilizing photography to sort of try to capture some sort of transformation. Um, do you think that's true? Yes. What, what about that is, is interesting to you? Well, I think all of us human beings get so caught up in like the product you know, especially mm. in the United States, being a capitalist yeah. country, we're very product mm -hmm. oriented and, yeah. you know, like it has to, everything has to be like polished and mm -hmm. presented and like, you know, mm -hmm. social media ready and stuff like yeah. that. But we all, we all know that you can't get there without mm. process and being in theater from a very young age. I mean, I've been in theater all my life. Um, I'm 39 now, and my first performance was when I was six, like my oh, first wow. professional performance. So I've always been privy to backstage, and I love, I love being backstage. And to this day, one of my favorite things to do is to go backstage at a Broadway show, even though I've been mm -hmm. in numerous ones, but just to see like how they, you know, how they fit everything in, how, how the sausage gets made, how the puzzle works. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have that curiosity 
Yeah. You know, and so getting that transformation and seeing transitional moments in life show that the transitional moments are actually just as magical as yeah. the product. Yeah, I want to shift to the the backstage. That's really interesting to me. But before I do, there's some probably some photography heads out there, some tech heads, gear heads. They might be wondering what kind of equipment is she using? If you could just give us a real quick uh, equipment update, and then I want to transition uh, hearing your thoughts a bit more about the backstage. Oh, sure. So I have a Canon 5D Mark II that I got in 2011. Um, And then I got a Sony Alpha 7S, I guess, or maybe it's just, no, Mark II, Sony Alpha 7 Mark II um, that I got in 2015. And then I wound up leaving Hamilton in 2016. So I haven't really have the had the funds to like update my equipment, although it is on the list of things that I want to do. Although both cameras still take gorgeous photographs because my Canon is what I use for like headshots and portraiture. And it just makes these images that are so painterly in a way, you know, like reminiscent of the details of like Renaissance paintings and things like that. And then the Sony Mm -hmm. takes these wonderful sort of like cinematic looking shots. Like they almost look like an incredible film still. Um, Hmm. And so I love I love both of them for those for those reasons. Uh, so th- those are the two things that I shoot on mainly. So bring us backstage because when I go to you know a Broadway musical, you know it's obviously an amazing experience. And sometimes I'm peeking back there <laughs> trying to trying to see what's going on, mm-hmm. and I'm just really curious. Uh, you know, can you? bring us back there a bit and for the person that has never seen back there but maybe imagining what it's like what's oh, the backstage like the backstage is as much of a show as the show itself mm. i mean everything has a place there is traffic pattern choreography because you have oh, wow. wardrobe people who have just helped somebody with a quick change and they have to get one costume out of the wing and they have to you know go and run under the stage in order to be back on the other other side of the stage to do a costume change with somebody else with a different costume. So Mm. you've got that going on. You've got all the crew folks who are preparing props and set pieces to go on in various wings at various times. And then you have all of the cast members going in and out of you know, the, the play space, the stage and and the backstage area, the stage manager is usually somewhere able to sort of, see the majority of what's going on sometimes. Whereas in like Wicked, the stage manager who is calling the show is like in a box seat. Really? Okay. Yeah. Whereas a lot of stage managers are usually backstage, uh, like, you know, standing, standing near the first wing or something to be able to call the show. And it's, it's cool. Like it's dark in a way, but it's also really bright because you have all the stage lights, like the side lights that come through, of course, Mm. light up the backstage area. So you have these great colors on people's faces and these dark shadows and these bright spots. And so Mm. like the lighting is really moody. And then when you have um, special effects and you've got like haze or you've got fog or something, you know, then there's, there's that as well. And it's just, I, I love 
I love being backstage. I love watching shows from backstage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. cause I really do. I like seeing the stage lights. It reminds me of going to concerts and it just feels, you know, makes you feel kind of like a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the energy like, uh, backstage? The energy, I mean, it's, it's up. The energy is alive for sure. Just, you know, like I said, it's as much of a show backstage as it is on stage. So that energy level that is happening on stage is happening just as much off stage. And then when people have downtime, there also tend to be little rituals. So you'll find different pockets of people like dancing to a particular part of a song that they're not on stage in, but they're just, you know, enjoying time with their friends or, you know, in the case of Matilda, there are like secret handshakes that the adults would have with the kids. And so it would happen every single day at the same time. The same kid would go up to the same adult and they do the same handshake before like going on stage, you know, or one of the kids would fart and then go down the slide and all the crew members would be laughing. Like, it just, <laughs> you know, for the, for the most part, like when you're backstage and you're running a show, it's really it's it's usually really good energy because it's what we love to do and it's what we're there for. And what were some of your rituals backstage? Um, I, I am definitely, I'm definitely one of the ones who will dance here and there. Although in Hamilton, I think my ritual every time I came off stage was just to relax because Hmm. the dancers were on stage most of the time. And the show was about three hours. (laughs) Hmm. So we were moving we were moving that whole time. And anytime I came off stage, I just wanted to like stand still or maybe even mm. like not speak. Um, <laughs> but like for Memphis, I, I was one of the double Dutch girls. There were two of us who had to do double Dutch, the jump roping with two ropes. Yeah. And when I first got in the show, I, I thought I, I thought I had it. And then like three weeks into my run, I sort of messed up the ropes again. And I realized it was because I was tired and I just couldn't Mm -hmm. get my feet to move fast enough that day. So after that day, every single show, I would go up, uh, go upstairs because our dressing room was downstairs. So I'd go upstairs and backstage for about two or three minutes while the song was going on. But before I had to enter, I would just Mm -hmm. jump up and down to the beat of the music so that my heartbeat and my energy level was at the tempo of the music so that by the mm. time I got ready to double dutch I knew exactly what tempo those ropes would be my body would know exactly what tempo those ropes would be turning and oh, wow. and after that after that time I I almost never made a mistake with mm. those ropes I want to talk about Hamilton a bit with Hamilton or maybe a a different musical that that you've been a part of. Uh, My question is this, how do you disconnect from the music? So I find myself after listening to Hamilton or different uh, Broadway or watching it, you know, I'm like humming it. I can't get the music out of my head. And I'm thinking about someone like you who's performing it day in, day out. It's part of who they are. Uh, How do you disconnect from that? Well, we, we go through the same thing. When, whenever, and I find this, whenever I'm learning a show, I do that. I can't get the music out of my head. I wake up thinking about it. I go to sleep thinking about it. Every commute was thinking about the music. Like I could not get the music out of my head, but that's because I was processing it and learning it. 
But mm-hmm. once once the show is sort of in your body, you can allow like I you don't have to think about it as much. And so then when you don't have to think about it as much, it doesn't stick with you on that daily basis the way that it did mm. when when you were learning the music. It's but it's all it it happens and it usually takes like probably a month or so if not longer to really get that sort of thing out of your system where you're like the day that you can finally go to sleep, not humming the songs. You're like, Oh, that was the best night's sleep ever. (laughs) (laughs) So that, that becomes after you stop sort of learning it and then you, you're not reciting it in your mind anymore. Yeah. Now what's, what's the process like for you after a show? I'm sure there's a lot of energy that goes into a show. What's your process after that to sort of bring it down um, so you're able to either go to sleep or do something else? Um, Very good question. And this is, you know, not necessarily for young ears, but a lot of the times there is substance that is involved. Okay. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it helps just to sort of take the air out of that energy a little bit. Like it's not to get Mm. obliterated. It's not to be like, oh my God, I just knock me out. You know, it's just to sort of like lower the, you know, I kind of think about it as lowering my diaphragm, if that Mm. makes any sense. Like my diaphragm when I'm performing sits pretty high in my chest because I'm dancing and singing. And so, you know, that energy's right there. And that way my abs can support all my dancing. Um, And so I find that after a show, I really need to be able to sort of lower that diaphragm to be able to take a deeper, more relaxed breath. Hmm. And so that's what substance can help with sometimes. But (laughs) also, you know, a lot of us don't go to sleep until two or three o'clock in the morning. Your show gets yeah. done, you know, at 1030 at night, maybe even mm-hmm. 11, depending on what the show is. And mm-hmm. then if you're in New York City, you've got to commute mm-hmm. home. If you have a pet, you have to walk that pet. You probably mm-hmm. haven't eaten since 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. dinner, 7 p.m. maybe. I mean, I would always eat for an 8 o'clock show. I would want to eat around like 430 or 5 yep. so that my food could would be completely digested and I would just be mm-hmm. on energy. Mm-hmm. And so I would also need to eat when I got home and then I would need to do body maintenance as well. Um, hmm. So I would either take like Epsom salts baths or I would use um, like a foam roller to help roll out some of my muscles um, or stretch a little bit, you know, do some light yoga, things that aren't too taxing on the body because I had already taxed it so much during the show. Uh, yeah. I would try to find the laziest maintenance possible. So that's, you know, that's what I would do. It, it was a lot. So then, like I said, you're not going to bed until about two or three o'clock in the morning. Some people, it takes them longer and they go to bed at like four. Yeah. Cause it just, you got to let that, you got to let that adrenaline wear off. Yeah. And doing it every night. Uh, is there any negative effects of ramping up that adrenaline uh, sort of on a daily basis? Oh, oh yes. And that's where I was in Hamilton was I, I was, I was in that sort of like, negative cycle of, um, like knowing what I had to accomplish during the show, everything that happened to me in the day during the day would affect my show. Hmm. And so, you know, like I wasn't taking my dog to the dog park as much because the dog park was like a mile and a half away and I would walk him Hmm. there. 
But when I have a three hour dance performance to do every single night, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about walking three miles with my dog on concrete, I was like, well, I can't do that to my body. And so I felt like I wasn't a good pet owner. Um, the, the schedule as well. And like the ramping up of the energy because it takes so long to go to bed. Of course you're sleeping in as well. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's hard to participate in the lives of your friends and your family because you're constantly tired. Um, and you're constantly thinking about, well, if I wake up early to go, you know, wherever, like that's, I'm not going to get enough sleep for my body to recover from the show I did the night before. And so then the show that this night is going to be even harder. And am I going to get enough sleep for the two show day that I've got after it? Hmm. And so it's just constantly in, it was constantly in my mind that everything I did in my life affected the show. And I was very tired of living for the show. Hmm. And so I, I was like, okay, it's time to go be a better dog owner, (laughs) participate Mm. in my personal life and my family life. Um, because it just, you know, it's six days a week, eight shows a week, six days a week, 52 weeks a year. Yeah. It seems like that would take a toll. I mean, you, you've talked about, you know, with your pet and, and relationships. I'm also thinking about the body, you Mm. know, um, you know, it needs time to sort of, you know, I, I haven't studied any of this, but it seems like it would need time to sort of build that back up and those storage, those storages. Oh, absolutely. And I was one of the oldest dancers um, on stage in Hamilton. And so, you know, also having been doing this since I was so young, you know, by the time I was on Hamilton, that's that's 32 years of dance abuse on my body on top of doing eight shows a week, six days a week. Um, and luckily because of the education that I've had in dance, uh, the classical upbringing, I know so much about, um, the efficacy of body movement and how, how it's supposed to work. So alignment helped me stay injury free. It also like that institutional knowledge, that education also let me know how much maintenance I needed to stay injury free and that Mm -hmm. maintenance was absolutely 100% necessary. And Mm. so it helped me like not go out to a bar afterwards and I would go home and do what I needed to do in order to recover so that I didn't injure Mm. myself. There are so many powerful songs in Hamilton and and the other Broadway musicals that you've mentioned that you've been a part of. Um, thinking about Hamilton or maybe another one that that comes to your mind, what has been uh, one of the most powerful songs that you've been a part of as you've been performing? Oh wow, um, good question. <laughs> so I mean, in Wicked, Defying Gravity is just. It's amazing for so many reasons. And I know that 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 was an inspiring song to me for for years. Um, And then in Memphis, it wasn't a song that I sang, but it was sung by the character Felicia and it was Colored Woman. And I loved it because it was written for an alto, basically, and not a, a soprano. And a lot of Broadway music, you know, the women sort of have to speak up here and, <laughs> and it's all very, it's all very delicate and cute. 
Um, and I'm obviously not that woman. <laughs> um, and so this, this song was just very like guttural and low and powerful and big. And so I loved hearing Montego Glover and Danielle Williamson and Tracy Beezer and Ashley Blanchett. Those are the women I heard sing that song. Um, and it was always, it always gave me chills because it's a sound you don't get to hear a lot on a Broadway stage. Mm. And so I loved it. Um, and then satisfied, forget about yeah. it. And Hamilton satisfied it, it, it was my first love. It continued to be my love throughout the run of the show. It will forever be my love, um, in the show. Cause I can, I can relate to that a lot about never, not, not necessarily, I mean, sure, in romantic relationships too, but I basically mean in life of never feeling satisfied and like always sort mm -hmm. of, you know, feeling like I need to do more or there's there's some sort of duty or there's just some sort of bigger thing that keeps me from mm -hmm. being just straight happy with what I have in the moment. Yeah. Um, and then in Matilda, it was When I Grow Up. I loved that song so much. And we, we as adults got to swing on the swings with the kids. And it was my favorite part of the show every single night. And I, when I got off the swing, I then got to like lie down on the stage while Miss Honey finished up the song. Yeah, that's what it was. And it was nice to just lie in the middle of a Broadway mm. stage and look up into the, you know, into the stage lights and be like, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> That's real nice. <laughs> You've been performing, like you said, since you were six. What do you think has drawn you to be a performer and to, to be doing it for your whole life? Oh, man. I mean, to be shallow, there's the attention part of it. But and I'm sure that's like what drew me as a kid. You know, like I got positive praise as a child for what I could do as a performer and I could follow directions well. And so, you know, I, it was easy for me to please people in that way. And I'm, I'm, my default setting is a people pleaser, even though somehow I'm like kind of an anarchist too. Um, <laughs> so performing was a way to do that, but it's just the way that performing makes a person feel when they're doing it is kind of like a drug and mm. it's addictive and it's powerful. And for the most part, it is incredibly uplifting and like confidence building. And so I sort of feel the most confident and powerful when I'm performing. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's what keeps me coming back is that it's just, it is where I feel like I am the best version of who I am. Yeah, Betsy, you've been, uh, you're obviously known for your role in Hamilton and some of the other musicals that you've mentioned, but you also have many other uh, artistic pursuits. Uh, you know, if we go to your website, you know, we see the photography, we see the patio jams, we see, uh, you know, the work uh, dancing, we see so many uh, different ways that, that you're expressing yourself. Can you talk about some of that and, and sort of what, you know, what's that process looking like for you right now? Absolutely. So 
as a young person, I was so focused on performing, so focused on ballet, on Broadway, that I wasn't really developing many other sides of myself. And like, you know, what other interests did I have that that went beyond performing? I didn't really explore that. And then um, once I finally got on Broadway in 2010, it was a nonstop roller coaster that I, I'm super grateful for um, because I was one of those people who was fortunate enough to bounce from show to show to show. Yeah. Um, and that's when you get to be that person on Broadway, it's kind of exciting because you've seen it happen for other people and you must, you know, you think to yourself like, well, that must be great. And, <laughs> and, in, and, and in a way it is, it is yeah, they're like, it is because <laughs> it makes life a lot easier, yeah. but it also, mm -hmm. it, it went far to burn me out. Mm. Um, you know, so I, my debut was in 2010, two months later I was in Memphis. So my debut was wicked in 2010, two months later. Cause I was only in wicked to, um, for somebody's medical leave. And so that was always temporary. And then I got Memphis and I was in Memphis for two years not for lack of trying to get out of it though. Cause I was auditioning still all the time. And so, you know, I had dance calls two or three times a month, if not more than mm. that on top of my Broadway show, you know, going to uh, singing auditions, TV auditions, like going, doing the whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and luckily I had Memphis and luckily it ran because, you know, I had a sort of a two year drought where after I booked Memphis, I couldn't book anything else. Hmm. Um, and so then in 2012, I booked leap of faith, which was my first originating show and I had to do double duty. So I did three weeks of double duty where I was rehearsing for leap of faith during the day and doing Memphis at night. And oh, on wow. two show days, I would start at leap of faith in the morning, go to the matinee of Memphis, come back to leap of faith between shows. And then after rehearsal was over, go back and do my nighttime show. Oh my goodness. So that was for three weeks. And then, yeah. And then Leap of Faith in total only lasted about two and a half months because we once we opened on Broadway, we closed two and a half weeks later. And so I was fortunate enough to get offered my job back at Memphis. And so I had six weeks off where I moved from like Hell's Kitchen to Queens. And then... I started back at Memphis and my first show back at Memphis, we got our closing notice. Wow. And I was like, okay. So I scrambled, you know, for more auditions because I at least had six weeks to find another job instead of these six days that I had with Leap of Faith. Mm -hmm. And so I scrambled and I got another job in another new show called Scandalous. So I had like four weeks off where I took myself down to the Dominican Republic uh, for a week with my camera and a lot of books. And just like <laughs> laid by the beach, read and took pictures mm -hmm. before starting Scandalous. Yeah. And then after we opened Scandalous, let me pause and go back. I had learned my lesson about original shows with Leap of Faith. And so I told my agent to keep auditioning me while I was in uh, rehearsals for Scandalous. Because I was like, I don't trust that this show is going to run. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, uh, Matilda was auditioning. And mm. I had heard like one voiceover and some underscoring 
of Matilda. And I was like, that show, I want to be in that show. Cause it sounded kind of yeah. like Harry Potter. So yeah. like that show is going to be great. Hadn't seen any of it. Um, and so I wanted Matilda. And so I was gunning for that. I was auditioning for that while doing scandalous. I booked Matilda before scandalous even opened. And then scandalous closed three and a half weeks after it opened. I had three weeks off, which was luckily over the holidays before starting Matilda. Mm. That's still 2012. <laughs> There's a lot that happened. All of, so yeah, so I like left Memphis, opened Leap of Faith, closed Leap of Faith, went back into Memphis, closed Memphis, opened Scandalous, closed Scandalous, and started my rehearsals for Matilda all in 2012. So then once I got Matilda, I was like, okay, cool, I am ready to park it here for a while. Yeah. So and then I also was tired of being in the ensemble by that point. So I had said to myself, like, okay, this will be my last show in the ensemble unless something very special comes along. (laughs) Enter Hamilton. Um, And so I, you know, I tried to get seen for a principal as for Hamilton, but that wasn't happening. And so then when I got called in for a dance call, the project was just too cool. And I had been introduced to satisfied. uh, Mm -hmm helpless and say no to this before the dance call. So I had heard Mm. satisfied and I was hooked. And so Mm -hmm. then I I got in that uh, dance call and just immediately was like, Oh, I I need to get this job. Nobody has ever asked us to dance like this in a Broadway audition. I feel powerful. I feel strong. uh, I feel sexy. I feel, I just, it just felt good. Mm. Um, And so then once that started, I was, I was doing the workshop of Hamilton while doing Matilda. And so it was the same double duty. And so I was like, you know, up every morning, walking my dog two, two and a half, three miles to doggy daycare, um, before going and rehearsing all day and then going to my show at night and having like somebody else pick up my dog at doggy daycare to take him home. Um, Mm. and so I just, I was burnt. I was just burnt out. By the time we ended the run at the public theater, I was absolutely exhausted. My body hurt, you know, and I just, I, I didn't understand then that what I needed was nature. And so after leaving Hamilton, um, I had like, I kind of went into a depression at the beginning of 2017 and I, because I just was like, I, like, I don't want to do ensemble work anymore, but nobody's really seeing me for principal work. I'm not getting any TV work. Like I've gotten voiceovers, which is great, but like nothing is like the plans I had for my career are failing. <laughs> mm. And so I started to get depressed and then I reached for a book called The Artist's Way. Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't. Who's, it's, do, do you know the author? Julia Cameron. And it is a 12, it's a 12 week program of writing exercises and visualization exercises that sort of let you know what you want in a really interesting exploratory way. Hmm. Um, And so I started doing the artist's way and that that's where patio jams came from. Hmm. Because it started, I, I was realizing that I'm like, oh, I want more control of my artistic life. Um, and I, and I'm tired of New York. 
like I was tired of the concrete and steel and, you know, dirty subway platforms. And so then I started like taking trips out to LA and it was like, oh my God, there's sunshine and warmth and trees. And like, you can go hiking in the city. I'm confused. Um, <laughs> and so that I, the more and more I started to realize that I was like, oh, okay. So all of my priorities have changed. Interesting. And so the artist's way was when I realized that I needed to start using my own artistic voice, but I hadn't developed that while I was coming up through Broadway because I'd been so focused on it, that now is the time um, that I'm using to really figure out what it is I want to say and how I want to say it. And so all, all the various things that I've you know got a finger in right now, that's me getting educated and, you know, it's trial and error. It's just like, well, let's, let's try my hand at editing. What is, you know, like, and so with the patio jams, I just was like, well, let's, you know, I love fashion. I love dance and I want to see, you know, what, what I can accomplish in sort of a, a video setting or a film setting and, you know, things that are social media friendly, because of course I didn't start my entertainment career with social media. Mm. And so social media has come up, you know, significantly, like it started when my career was already significantly going. And so to start incorporating social media into my um, like routine, I didn't do very well. And so I wanted to create these like videos or these art pieces or whatever to be like, oh, let me let me see what I can, you know, see how my artistic voice looks in the social media realm. And so that's why I started doing the patio jams was just to create something, anything. And the easiest way for me to create anything interesting is with dance. <laughs> mm. So that's why I started with the patio jams. And then, you know, now like my editing skills have they've grown so much in two years. Um, and then I've been making these little videos with one of my drag queen buddies. And that's been fun to like pick music and then edit to the music. And then I realized that when I'm editing the storyline, I'm also editing the storyline to music because of, you know, the way, the way Hamilton is built, the way rap is built, certain words need to land on the downbeat because they're the word that you want to pay attention to. So like, that's the kind of stuff I put into my, you know, minute and a half drag queen videos. Like they're a lot more complex and thought out um, than they, than meets the eye upon first yeah, viewing. Yeah. yeah. And so it's all, I'm just weaving all of my experiences together um in hopes of just taking more control of my own life hmm. if that makes sense yeah, did i answer the question to... that was a really yeah, long yeah <laughs> yeah it's exciting to hear and as as you're talking i'm like envisioning these different strands sort of coming together and i'm seeing this like journey right and it's a journey you've taken but it's also an educational journey yes. that, that you've mentioned and uh and that's powerful. It also seems like, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but but this journey, this process has been really helpful for you to recover from some of those things you were mentioning. Is that true? Oh, 100%. Um, like when I was in that depression, 
Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like I, my, my partner and I at the time had, we owned an apartment in Brooklyn. And so like the mortgage was so large that I didn't have extra money to like go to therapy. And I knew that that's what I needed ultimately, but I, I just, I didn't want to be away from my dog. I didn't want to interact mm-hmm. with New York city. I didn't want to get on the train. I, mm-hmm. you know, I just didn't want to leave my home. And so I, the artist's way was like therapy for me. And it was exactly what I needed um, because it really did expand my mind creatively yeah. um, and, and really helped me see what, what the problems actually were. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, like I was angry all the time and my edges were so sharp and I just knew that I needed a break and I needed to slow down and I needed sun and sun and nature and the beach. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's exciting to think about the role that that journey has played, you know, in, in, in your journey. And you, you also teach, right? You, you Mm -hmm. teach and you enjoy teaching. And I'm just interested to talk uh, really well, somewhat briefly about this as we start to wind down this conversation. When you're teaching, what do you think makes a successful learning experience for your students? Oh, goodness. One where they walk away having grasped some of the information and in a way that leaves them like with a smile on their face and wanting more. And and how do you do that? Ask questions, you know, ask the question, does anybody have any questions? And, you know, really listen to what people have to ask, but also to give people different ways of learning the information, not just showing them, but breaking it down and explaining it to them, not necessarily breaking it down and explaining it to them in absolute dancer vernacular, but in like layperson's terms so that art doesn't have to be this like esoteric discussion in order to participate in it in a meaningful and significant way. Hmm. What has been an example of of a learning experience where you feel that the students sort of got it, right? The light bulbs went off and you were smiling to yourself because you're thinking, yeah, this is great. And the kids are smiling to themselves, or at least it seems like they are. Um, and they're saying, yeah, this is, this is great. What was an experience uh, like that? I mean, luckily, I've done a lot of, instead of being an instructor who gets the same students over and over again, you know, I do a lot more like masterclass scenarios where I only get um, a unique group of individuals for that limited time and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of, a really fun experience I had was, um, so my sister has a dance fitness company called work, which is who I teach for. And so she's in this dance fitness realm, but because of me growing up in, you know, ballet and in theater, she has such an appreciation for that side of dance as well, that one time she had, she brought me to Chicago to teach like a Hamilton masterclass, but the majority of people I was teaching to were to the people who take her dance fitness class. And so they're not necessarily, they've had fairly like no dance training 
or very, very mm-hmm. little dance training, let alone have they ever taken like a real dance class that breaks down the choreography and, you know, especially for theater, because theater isn't necessarily as successful in the dance fitness world. Um, and so watching this group of women, adults, dance this piece and my sister was in the class. So watching her dance it as well, was <laughs> super fun. And then my cousin was, she came down, uh, and no, she lived in Chicago at the time. Did she? I don't know. Anyway, but she was also there. And so then at the end of class, my sister filmed the three of us, us family members dancing <laughs> together Uh And watching that video brings a huge smile to my face because it is incredible how well the three of us danced together. Like our musicality was almost completely in sync. We were dancing together just so well, but our individual styles came out too. Mm -hmm. And it was just nice to see, you know, three adult women who belong to the same family and have Hmm. come to dance in different ways in their life, come together and do this thing and like match. It was crazy. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Uh, and thanks for sharing that story. And I really appreciate the, how you're elevating sort of the joy of learning, like the smile on your face. Like that was a story you wanted to share and the story of a good learning experience is the, is the children or the student, however old they are, uh, smiling. And, and so often, you know, I've seen that they, that we're sort of ignoring that and, and not bringing that to the table as significance. And, and I, I've seen, um, you know, when a student has a smile on their face, uh, they're engaged and they're learning, whether it be dance or, or something else, uh, to such a greater degree. And, um, and it shows we're really hitting something that they're enjoying. I 100% agree. And I think it because I came up in almost the exact opposite way is hmm. the reason that I want to interesting is the reason that that's what I want to give in a dance class is because, you know, I was in like professional ballet program by the time I was eight, ultimately um, on point by the time I was nine, like I was being trained as a professional ballerina. And then I went to these um, summer programs when I was younger at School of American Ballet in New York City, Pacific Northwest Ballet in uh, Seattle, like when I was middle school aged. Mm -hmm. And while I still loved them, like I've never necessarily been in a wonderfully nurturing dance environment, Um, but I love dance so much. And I, and I just wish that there had been more joy Cause I remember um, at Juilliard where I went to college um, I felt like the teachers only ever gave dancers a compliment when the dancer was having such a crappy day that they were literally crying in class. Hmm. And I, I would watch that and I'm like, I don't want a compliment because I'm crying. I want a compliment because I'm good <laughs> or yeah. because I'm like doing the thing. And so Mm. that impacted me a lot. And so when I come into a classroom to teach dance, the thing I want the most is for people to be able to enjoy themselves. Yeah. Why do you think educators, whether it be in dance or in schools, try to scrape that joy away? Why do you you think that happens so often? I I wonder if it's that that they think it's not 
like you have to be serious in order to be effective. Mm. When some of my favorite teachers growing up were the teachers who had a great sense of humor and brought so much joy to to the classroom. Like one of my world history teachers in seventh grade would come dressed like we'd be talking about the Greeks. And so she would be in a toga that day or we'd be talking (laughs) about, you know, the Renaissance era. And she would be in one of those like cone hats with a scarf hanging off of it and some weird dress, (laughs) Um, you know, standing out in the hallway, just greeting the students like everything was normal. And Mm -hmm. it was so much fun. And so I remember a lot more about world history than I remembered from U.S. history because none of my U.S. history teachers ever made it fun. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing to remember, and that's that's really resonating with me. And uh, and and thank you, you know, for for sharing that and and bringing that to the forefront. Um, Betsy, we are uh, we have to bring this podcast uh, to a close. It's been wonderful talking with you. As we come to a close, who would you like to give a shout out to? Oh man, my my family. My, my parents have been incredibly supportive uh, my entire life, and they continue to be, even in this crazy time of me being like, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is what I'm doing. They're like, okay. Um, mm. my, my sister, Haley, who is like the biggest champion that I have, um, mm. I, I've been enjoying working with her and work fitness so much because it, it, it's great to, for our time and our ideas and our wants to be overlapping. Um, and you know, and my brother Reed, he's always been super supportive too. And so my family is just, they've just been stinking great. (laughs) (laughs) Like they've been, they've been my rock and I could not, I could not do what I do without them. That's great. It is Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? Oh, man. Um, I mean, education is the key to enlightenment. Mm. (laughs) Just in everything. I mean, you and I are having this discussion as we're about to have an election tomorrow. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like knowing how politics works, having that education, knowing it, it makes you want to participate more and it makes you have an opinion. And so like, just read a book, read a magazine, read a newspaper, you know, like try and glean all the knowledge you can from everything you do. Betsy, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time, sharing your perspective, all of those wonderful stories. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.